0: Son, you got a panty on your head.
1: You drive fast,
2: eh? Welcome to the Hollywood and Toto Podcast, the right take on entertainment. The hit cast offers a weekly look at Hollywood from a conservative point of view.
1: Sick of media bias infecting Hollywood headlines? Tired of stars insulting your views? Hit has your back. Now, here's your host, Christian Toto.
2: Welcome to episode 132 of the Hollywood and Toto podcast, The Right and Entertainment. This week we're talking with Brian Hainer, a guitarist turned stand-up and part of the Eagles of Liberty comedy tour. He's got a great story to tell about his career evolution, plus a warning for those who think right-leaning views won't impact their next gig. You're probably wrong. Bill Burr, Sebastian Maniscalco, Dave Chappelle. Three very funny men, three very pointed attacks on cancel culture, and just about everyone's taking notice. They attacked the PC mob in very different ways, but each landed some pretty serious body blows. Maniscalco did it first by hosting the wokest of woke events, the MTV VMAs. His attack on safe space culture proved edgier than any twerking pop star, that's for sure. Talk about taking it to the enemy. And then Chappelle's Netflix special, Sticks and Stones, made media critics lunch for their stuffedies and safe spaces. And it's about time. Burr followed up with a full-on assault on those who want to cancel people for saying, quote-unquote, the wrong things. Boy, is it glorious. But what happens next? At the moment, a Saturday Night Live player who just joined the show probably the event of his lifetime, professionally speaking, is on the cusp of being fired for saying all the wrong things not too long ago. They caught him on tape saying things that were sexist and racist and offensive and all sorts of things that you really don't want to say in public, but he is a comedian. He is trying to push the envelope, which is his excuse. Will he survive? Well, by the time this podcast goes live, he may already be on the unemployment line. Now, Burr and Chappelle and Maniscalco definitely struck a blow against the PC culture, no doubt. But this is a long fight, and it's one that's far from over. But at the very least, someone is finally standing up to the woke scolds, and that's a hell of a start. And now here's the hit tweet of the week. This week's winner is Mark Ruffalo. This guy's green on and off screen. We know him as the Hulk in the Avengers movies, but he is extremely environmentally conscious, or at least he pretends to be. Who knows what he's like when you check out his electric bill, but that's a story for another day. But for now, he's a huge fan of that Green New Deal, the AOC catastrophe. Yes, he's bought into the silliest thing I've ever read on the political landscape, but hey, it's one that even his fellow leftists are a little bit leery of supporting, officially speaking. Here's his tweet plea on the deal's behalf. The Green New Deal will get us to a green and just climate future, but it's important that we ask our members of Congress to support it. Join me in sending a message to Congress right now. Well, sorry, Mark. They already had a chance to support it in Congress, and it went down in flames. Your fellow Democrats said, well, nah, we're good. I want to look into that. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to my daddy's podcast. I recently received a few emails from a fan of the podcast. She said some nice things about the show, which is obviously more than welcome. But she also weighed in on some pop culture issues. And I thought, ah, that's interesting. There's a lot of insight and passion here. So we went back and forth on email, and I thought, maybe I should have her on the show. Now, it turns out that Jane Doe, not her real name... Is a pretty smart pop culture consumer. And I think that kind of voice is often miss- missing in our society. You know, yes, people can kind of weigh in on the comment sections of a webpage and things, but as far as the mainstream media goes, I don't think voices like Jane get a lot of attention. But I thought we can at least partially fix that by having her on the hitcast. I hope you enjoy our spirited back and forth. Well, Jane, Jane Doe is not your real name. I know that's a shock. But uh, before we begin, I just wanted maybe you can share a little bit why you wanted to use a fake name. Because, you know, people have different reasons for doing it and we're living in complicated times. Just just for listeners, why do you decide to kind of go that route and we'll kind of get into the heart of the conversation.
0: Well, there are two reasons why I do prefer to use a pseudonym. One of them is um, I am a bit shy because we live in a world where if you put your name online, suddenly everyone around the globe knows who you are. So I do prefer a bit of privacy. Um, and because I consider myself a fan of science fiction and fantasy, I, I do use a pseudoname when I'm writing into a fan-related podcast, when I'm writing fan fiction or on my blog. So just for a little bit of privacy sake and mm-hmm. a bit shy. And the other reason is because um my career does not have anything to do with it i don't i'm not a professional journalist or a public speaker not like ben shapiro or dennis prager who want to get their name out i'm just trying to offer my perspective as a consumer of media
2: excellent and that's perfect and i really want that perspective so uh and by the way none of us can compare to ben shapiro who spits out words like like nobody's business so i will never put myself in that category thank goodness but uh well you know Uh, Gene, you reached out to me recently, and we've kind of had some emails back and forth, and I appreciate the dialogue you've had. That's why I wanted to talk to you. And you talked about how – listen, we've all seen a lot of Democrats evoking the Holocaust and concentration camps with some of the president's policies. And I think even if you despise the president's policies, I found that well beyond the pale. But you also say that there are some Hollywood stories that are coming out that are doing something similar or even actors doing something similar. So I just wonder, what have you seen that's out there that you can kind of share? Because I think it's important to kind of talk about this element of pop culture too.
0: Yeah, there are are several examples that I've I've noticed in the science fiction, especially um, fantasy worlds. They sort of add up. And one of them, for example, is like um, you've discussed before the issues with the new Star Wars, how suddenly all white men are evil. Um, you know how all business is bad. That horrible canto bite scene, that was just ridiculous. Personally, I preferred the scene in Solo where they had to go to the fancy yacht. I thought that was a much cooler one. Mm-hmm. And Star Trek, you had this issue with the Klingons first, and there's this whole subtlety that it's about nationalism and, and it's all related to the president. You have J.K. Rowling, she has this new. Um, prequel series and she's mentioned in press releases we're going it's all about fascism and the fans are saying well you kind of did that with your Harry Potter saga that was all (laughs) about the, the, the pure blood or not and people are and the audience members those of us who are buying tickets are kind of thinking why are you invoking things from the past nowadays we know things aren't exactly the way but Hollywood seems to be in this bubble of oh the past is repeating exactly itself you have to wake up and the audience is not like that. Honestly, when you're in the, an average person and you work hard all day, you wanna go home and watch a movie, you just wanna be entertained. And we get the impression we're being lectured to. And at some point, we're not having fun anymore because they have to use these drastic words. Doctor Who does this as well. They had a uh, new evil bad guy who was a politician. Of course, he was a capitalist and American and he's running for president. What I really wanna to get to at the point where the line was crossed for me, was a series from the CW, um, the shows they have Arrow, The Flash. I don't know if you've watched any of those. I have not. Um, no. Okay, so we started watching Arrow a few years ago, and it was fun. There was The Flash, Supergirl, um, Legends of Tomorrow, and they had a four-part called Crisis on Earth X. The idea was there was this one planet where – The Nazis won the World War, and they decided to invade the superhero planet, and we get to see some of the superheroes became Nazis. But what got to me was the imagery. At one point, they are transported to an authentic concentration camp, and there's barbed wire, and they're wearing striped pajamas, and one heroine mentions that she's gay, and she gets slapped, and another mentions she gets Jewish, and she's put in front of a firing squad. And it just took me so far out of the story. I'm thinking, you have... Time travel. You have people who can run faster than the speed of light. Why are you doing this? And it was jarring. And I was appalled and sick. And I thought, how dare you cheapen history, the people who endured that, the people who did not survive by you know trying to educate people through a sci-fi show. And at one point, somebody made the comment, make America Aryan again. I thought, okay, that's it. I'm done. At that point, you've crossed the line, Hollywood.
2: Yeah, you know, it's a good point. And I think there's a, you know, science fiction – has often been used to talk about serious issues. And I think that's welcome and wonderful. But I think what you're seeing now is that the storytellers can help themselves. And when they use a line like that, it's such a tell. But also, it just takes you dramatically out of the story. It's, it's so obvious. It's so overt. And, hey, if you want to send a message, then do it in a way that if you don't even notice it or maybe you reflect on it maybe minutes later it, it, if it becomes so clunky i think it really defeats the purpose on multiple levels but you know you're a person you're a jewish person and i think that perspective is often missing in our culture because you're trivializing the holocaust whether it's a democrat saying it or a a clunky tv show saying it is there outrage within the jewish community but it's not being heard any any sort of sense in that regard
0: this one is a little harder to pinpoint. I would have to say that the truth is I think most people who work in, in Hollywood, Jewish people who work in Hollywood, are liberals. So they may not mind this, this sort of thing or that's just the way they see it. Uh, you know, I'm more conservative. I identify as orthodox. And believe me, some orthodox people don't, don't like the president. Maybe there's just not much of an outcry because you mentioned on your podcast that there, there are probably less people who are open about being conservative in mm-hmm. Hollywood. So maybe some Jewish people are afraid if we open our mouths and say this, um, we're afraid of rocking the boat. There, there's always that underlying fear that if we open our mouths, someone's going to say something. And once on YouTube, though, I did call out about the crisis on Earth X, and sure enough, somebody there's always somebody who's nasty online. Somebody said, you're just bringing it up because you want your pound of flesh. How dare you use it? Oh, boo-hoo-hoo, you're just trying to monopolize on the suffering of your ancestors. But at the same time, there were two very nice comments. People said things like, you articulated very well what you said, and I uh, agree with you, and what you said proves our Jews are very smart. Mm-hmm. I think because we're afraid of our words getting distorted or intentions, people say, then what are we supposed to do? How do we use the Holocaust to educate people? And I would say use it to educate people, not for entertainment or in the case of AOC, don't use it to woo people to your political side. We may see this more on the left. I would say people on the right, please be careful not to do the same thing.
2: Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I, it's, there's always going to be sort of. Uh, ill-tempered thoughts on social media, but uh, it is important to have that dialogue. Um, you know, given the fact that I think Hollywood is going to the extreme, part of it is, I think you hit on a good point, if you're a Jewish celebrity and you say, you know what, I don't agree with the comparisons to the Holocaust, then that, in a weird way, is like defending the president, and that is completely unacceptable in that community, so that that, that may sort of make them want to stay quiet. Um one other thought you know I, I like to kind of add positives and not just kind of dwell on the negatives but you said you had, you kind of had revisited a movie from a few years ago not too long ago called Freedom Riders and it starred Hilary Swank and you know it came out I don't think it got a lot of buzz not a lot of box office but you said that that was a sort of a a, a more fair a more thoughtful way to incorporate some of the Holocaust themes into a story maybe just share a little bit about that movie because I you know I never caught up with it and uh, I kind of regret that right now
0: Oh, it's it's definitely worth going back and rewatching. I remember seeing it on an airplane going to visit friends, and I got off the plane. And I said, "Have you heard of this movie?" And all my Jewish friends said, "Oh yeah, we have. We loved it." And we're thinking, "What is it that made this movie resonate with us?" And I think the answer is, it's not a film strictly about the Holocaust. It was being used in a school effectively. You have Hilary Swain playing Aaron Gruwell, who's dealing with these inner-city kids, and society has given up on them. They're all in gangs. Uh, but I think the first of all, the material is treated with respect in the context of the story there's a scene where they go to a holocaust museum and she gestures for this boy to take off his baseball cap he does not argue with her he does not glare he respectfully takes it off and you see the kids are not laughing or joking the message is sinking into them that it's not about them coming from different backgrounds or different races it's, it's not about well we have nothing to live for so we might as well shoot each other in a gang fight it's not about changing society it's about changing yourself and your mindset and she tells this to them, you know, they say, well, we just can die and that's it. She says, you're going to be six feet under and that's it. Everyone's going to forget about you. So she does turn things around. She gets them new books that they're, they're proud of reading. She encourages them to, to write, to speak their minds, And to, to bring up another film, Life is Beautiful, she does make life beautiful for them. And she makes them become proud of themselves at the end of the film. The kids get to speak to, Neap Geese, her name is, the woman who hit Anne Frank. And a boy mm-hmm. gets up and says, you're my hero. And she just very calmly says, oh, no, I'm not a hero. I just did what I had to do. And she says, you don't need to make big, drastic changes, be in a protest, run, a rally. It's the small things in life, those little acts of kindness. Those are what matter the most. And I think it just comes back to human dignity. We may not be able to change everyone's minds, but I think if you have a more positive attitude in, in life and changing yourself, you're going to get much further in life and you're going to be better to everyone around you
2: yeah well it's a it's beautiful fun. message and uh, again i think it just points to the power of pop culture when done when and when it's done with heart and integrity and obviously an artistic sensibility it can really send a, a powerful message and again i never want to censor people they can say what they want to say but i think the the crudeness of the message and the uh the, the lack of decorum sometimes is leaves them open for criticism but uh, well Jane thank you so much and and again Jane has been sort of emailing me back and forth behind the scenes and that's why I wanted to have her on the show we may have her back again when when we have sort of another conversation we want to share with uh, all of you listeners but Jane thank you so much keep consuming pop culture keep being smart about it and uh, keep speaking out in your own inimitable way I really appreciate it
0: oh thank you very much
2: you're listening to the Hollywood in Toto podcast the right take on entertainment. My hit tip of the week is Itsy Bitsy. Yeah, it's a hard movie about spiders, and you're going to have to look past the film's really silly, really retro poster. It's not terrible, it's actually kind of fun. It just has nothing to do with the film you're about to see. The story follows a single mom who has two kids, and she's moving her kids to a different part of the country a quieter place where she's going to work as a nurse for an ailing man who, he's having trouble um, getting around the home. But this man in particular likes rare artifacts, the kind that often come with curses attached to them. And I have to say, this movie starts badly. I wanted to turn it off and I paid for it. I think you'll have the same impulse when you watch a few minutes of it, but wait, don't do it. It gets better and better. And eventually it becomes a character study about this young mom who's really struggling, trying to make ends meet, trying to stay sane. And then a huge spider enters her house and tries to kill her family. Now, the film has really good performances. And what I liked about it the best, perhaps, is the practical effects on display to make this spider come to life. The director actually worked in special effects, and he's kind of switching over to behind the scenes. And I think he does a pretty good transition here. Itsy Bissy is available right now in video-on-demand services. And as an alternative to the usual horror affair, I recommend it.
1: Political Spirits, the weekly conservative podcast that says the left and right should have a few drinks and talk. The only podcast that intersperses commentary with the sound of pouring alcohol. Host Franklin Rye, an experienced governmental affairs professional, offers analysis, commentary, and conservative solutions mixed in with amusing anecdotes about the sausage-making process. Ever wonder how democracy is like a Chevy Suburban? Did the Beatles really write conservative songs? How a Democrat politician is like the Archillians in Men in Black? Add to that occasional historical episodes with a patriotic bent, kept at 30 minutes or less, perfect for a commute, and you have a podcast recipe to serve conservatives, political news and opinion junkies, and those who just wonder how on earth we reach the point where so many in our country think patriotism is a dirty word. Please join us at Political Spirits. That's politicalspirits.libsyn.com or on Twitter at Franklin Rye. Brian Hainer knew
2: he'd be a guitar slinger from a very early age. Just one of those things where you just get a sense of where you're going to be in life. And he's lived up to that dream for decades, touring and performing session work like a true rock and roller. Then he decided to switch gears and embrace comedy in his act. He got the attention of a comedy superstar. You may know him, Jeff Dunham. Pretty big name toured the world with him, and all of a sudden, Brian Hayner is not just a guitar slinger, he's a comedian too. Now he's an in-demand comic who sings some very funny songs along the way, and he just so happens to be a conservative, and that's where the trouble and the opportunity starts. On the plus side, he's been part of the recent Deplorables Comedy Tour, and now he's about to launch the Eagles of Liberty Tour alongside Chad Prather, Reno Collier, and Michael Loftus. And if those names sound familiar, well, they're funny guys, and they've all been previously on this podcast. So still, that quartet is is facing some pretty serious harassment for simply leaning right. They're not acting crazy. They're not saying things that are outrageous. They're just embracing Trump and embracing conservative views. And that's, as they say, problematic. Brian has some of the ugly details about what they've faced and what he's faced in particular coming up next. I hope you enjoy my conversation. With a very funny guy, Brian Hayner. Well, Brian, I heard you say something on stage, which I'm going to guess is true. You said that you heard a Beatles chord, a riff, and that was sort of the starting point for your love of music and obviously guitars in particular. Is that a true story? And maybe tell me a little bit about as a kid falling in love with the guitar because I sense, I, I sense that's where it all began. Yeah,
3: that's that's really it. I think for a lot of musicians my age, uh, I think that first Beatle, when you saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show and they, uh, they went into, you know, hard days, not hard days. Not, I think that was, I want to hold your hand was mm-hmm. that open kind of thing that they did. And all the girls were screaming and I was maybe, I think I was about six years old at the time. But, uh, I mean, the music was amazing, obviously, but uh, but I also like the fact that all the chicks were screaming. I was like, I can, <laughs> I can get into that. <laughs> it's funny, but it's true. Even at six, it was like that That wasn't lost on me. But it's like these guys are getting some some cool attention from from all the right
2: people. Uh, it's funny. My son, I guess he saw the Austin Powers movie a year or two ago. And one of the things he took away from me is, Dad, the girls are chasing him all over. So even as a young boy, that, that has a certain appeal. So I totally get that. But uh, now, did you start playing at a younger age, or how did the sort of the how did the talent side of things, which obviously is here, how did that kind of play out as as an early as a kid? Yeah, there was a lot of uh, a lot of music in my
3: family. Um, some uncles. I had an uncle that played guitar in a, in you know some of the big bands back in the forties, and my mom was a musician, not uh, not a, a professional musician, but she was uh, you know certainly. She played piano and cello, and she sang and ever ever since she was a kid. And so we always had music in the house. Um, my dad played a little guitar, some harmonica. So we were always singing. They taught me how to sing harmony. And so, yeah, I started at a really early age. I think I started picking up the guitar at five or six. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, like any anything else, I just fooled around with it for a few years and then really got bit by the bug when I was maybe um, 10 or 11, right in there and then then it was then it just became part of me yeah. from that point on i'd take the guitar to school i'd play it at lunch i'd play it on recess it was like i was that guitar nerd <laughs> and fortunately at the time if it would have been any other instrument i probably would have got beat up but <laughs> The time you know in the during the '60s, you know the the late '60s that when the Beatles and the Stones and all that stuff were happening, I'd you know, I'd go to school and play the guitar, and I was playing like Beatles stuff and Stone stuff, and so naturally the girls were all gathered around. So so it wasn't I wasn't a nerd. I was just kind of I was kind of cool, but but in a sad way, you know. It's the only way I could
2: garner any attention. Gotcha. Now obviously your family had the musical chops. It was part of your growing up. But there's a difference between playing guitar and then saying. Hey guys, I'm going to make a career out of this. Did your family support you when you kind of made that decision or was it a little, little bit, Hey, couldn't you be an accountant or a doctor or something like that?
3: Yeah, no, I, my family couldn't have been better. Okay. You know, they bought my mom and dad bought me instruments. They encouraged me. My dad's whole thing was just, uh, be good at something. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, don't waste your time and be good at something. And whether that's, you know, whether you, you sell, um, storm doors, in Iowa, or, or you're a guitar player, whatever it is, just be good at it, be the best that you possibly be at it. And if you do that, um, chances are, you'll be able to, you know, make some sort of a living at it. And so yeah, I was very encouraged, very blessed uh, to have the family that I had brothers and sisters that encouraged me and and helped me out my older brother played guitar. And so he taught me along the way as well. And uh, yeah, it worked out. It obviously worked out well. I started doing little birthday parties and gigs when I was 12 or 13. And then by the time I was 15, I was in clubs. And then 17, 18, I started working in studios and got a record deal when I was 20. And so, yeah, it it went. uh, There was no other. It happened when I was so young that there was never I never felt like there was a a choice, yeah. almost. You know what I mean? It was just like, this is what I was going to do, and I was going to figure out how to do it, and then I, fortunately, like I said, I was blessed with enough talent that uh, that I could actually do it professionally.
2: Huh, no no plan be required there. Now, you're playing the guitar professionally, you've got a career going. At some point, there's a comedy itch that needs to be scratched. Can you talk about that transition? Because it, 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 you know, there aren't a ton of guitar, guitar comedy slingers, I guess you could say. You know, you're 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 in that that elite group. Uh, what happened there?
3: Um, yeah, it was it was fairly organic. It was I've always been uh, I've always bounced around a little bit. I've always been in music, but I played studio guitar. Then I had a uh, I had a record deal, and then I scored you know a couple of movies and wrote songs. I always kind of bounced around within the music business just to keep things interesting. It wasn't just you know, I guess the guitar is the constant, but, but I would get bored if that was all I had. Yeah. And so I started writing songs. I actually went to Nashville and uh, hooked up with a couple of good songwriters in Nashville. We started uh, writing songs and plugging songs. And I found that uh, when you're presenting a song or presenting a group of songs, if you open with something funny, mm-hmm. it gets their attention. They're like, oh, this guy's cool. He's, he's got a sense of humor. I get it. And then they'll listen to your serious stuff. And so, um, unfortunately, <laughs> they, they love the comedy stuff. They, I, that's, I got known around Nashville as the, as the guy that wrote the funny songs. And it, uh, it sort of, you know, one thing led to another until I, I really got pretty good at, at just writing, you know, funny original songs. And I was sitting in uh, with a band here in L.A., Sitting in with a band, some friends of mine, and they said, hey, you should do one of your songs. And I think I did "Carney Man. I think I sang Carny Man. And this guy approached me after after the, the set. He walked up and he goes, hey, have you ever thought of doing comedy? And I'm like, now this is literally, I'm 40, I think I'm 45 years old at this time. Uh-huh this is, yeah, I'm, I, and this guy comes, Hey, we're going to make you a star kid. It's like, yeah, I've been down that road a couple of times. So he said, no, 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 I'm serious. If you want to do comedy, just can you, can you put together 10 minutes? And so I said, well, yeah, I guess so. And then I thought, why not? You know, it'll be, if I, if I bomb, it'll be a funny story. And, uh, it's just a life experience. Well, you know, what the heck? And I know I can be funny for 10 minutes. And so I'll just do a couple of songs. And, so he calls me literally the next day and says, OK, you're opening every night this week for Lisa Lampanelli at the Improv. <laughs> and I was like, who is this guy? And it turns out he was like the biggest comedy manager in, in the world. Oh, and he, and, he, and he's managing, he was managing Jeff Dunham at the time, which I didn't know. Mm. So I went in and the worst thing that possibly could have happened happened. And that is that I absolutely killed I did 10 minutes and just killed. And I thought, this is easy. This is a piece of cake. I had no idea what was in store. And uh, so, yeah. So then one thing led to another. I spent about a year doing that, just opening for different acts around L.A. And then uh, and then I got the call from the manager that Jeff was uh, – Dunham was looking for somebody to add some music to the show. And he wanted to do a Christmas album. Could I write some songs? Could I back him up on
2: stage? And I thought, Yeah. You know, that, I think that'll be fun. And it was, for sure. And obviously a very fruitful collaboration. Real quickly, I understand when you first started doing sort of the transition, you did some naughtier songs, and you, and it seemed easy. But then you thought, I can't keep doing this, because I may have to perform for maybe more G-rated audiences. Talk about that switch. I thought that was fascinating, just to just kind of, how you kind of changed gears like
3: that. Well, I think in the beginning, the thing that... Uh, you know, with comedy, it's like you can say anything. That's that's what you think. Yeah. You know, that's what intrigued me is like I can say anything. It's like, well no you can't. <laughs> First of all, if you're an opening act, the the word supporting comes into play. You are a supporting act. You're there to support that artist. And like I said, the um the uh, first week I did comedy was Lisa Lampanelli. And so I cursed and I sang dirty songs and <laughs> loved it. And Lisa didn't care. Yeah. And then the next week I'm opening for, um, John Panette. Uh, if you remember him, yes, great, great comedian, completely, completely G rated. And I'm getting ready to go on stage. And John goes, you know, you know, this is a G rated show. And I'm like, I laugh. I go, yeah, right. He goes, no, there's no cursing in the show whatsoever. <laughs> and I was like, well, so I went up on stage and I struggled and and pretty much just sucked out loud. And and so uh, and he he actually switched me out. He called, you know, management the next day and said, Look, can you get me somebody else? This guy is not an opening act that that I want in my show. It's just not, it's not cutting it. And that's when it dawned on me, holy cow, I have to be able to, I have to be a chameleon. And then the more I got into it, um and exercising those muscles, I realized that 90% of what you do. If you, if you want to be successful, 90% of what you do has to be clean. I mean, you can get away with the, some dirty stuff here or there, and that's fine. But if you want to get on TV, if you want to get on a big tour like the Dunham tour, you've got to be squeaky clean. And, you, you know, with Dunham, I couldn't even say crap. Mm-hmm. It was like that was reserved for him. He, he said a couple of curse words and almost none. But he would say a couple of curse words. But that was his call. He knew where he could do that and it wouldn't alienate his audience. And but I wasn't allowed at all to curse. And like I said, you exercise those muscles and you start realizing that you were depending on curse words to be funny. And that's an old, you know, I I learned this from another comedian. Take the curse word out of a joke. If it still gets a laugh, you have a joke. If it doesn't get a laugh, you don't have a joke you just got a shock curse word in there to make people laugh,
2: you know? Yeah. So, and that's something I've noticed. Yeah. In there's a big the learning. Couple years. A lot of movie scripts have really been profane and I'm not upset by that, but it's very clear that they're using those curses as the crutches to try to get you to laugh. And it's not, not always working out that way. Uh, now you kind of made, I guess you could say another transition from being a guitarist to a comedy guitarist. And now you're being sort of a right of center personality. Uh, is, was that as organic as the other transitions in your career?
3: Um, well, yeah, in a sense, in a sense, I've always been, you know, I voted for Reagan when I was, you know, 20 or whatever, 21. So I've always been a conservative, but, um, or now I consider myself a libertarian really now, Mm -hmm. but still that, that leans way on the conservative side for me. And, uh, so I was out of comedy. You know, comedy for me, after I left Dunham, I went out and did, um, I think, a year or two of, of... I headlined comedy clubs. And it got to the point where I was getting so many complaints about stuff that wasn't even edgy, that I felt like was pretty middle of the road. And people were, you know, like, either complaining or walking out or whatever. And, it, and I couldn't do colleges. And so it just wasn't fun. And so I quit. Went back to just playing guitar uh-huh. and having a great life. And then... Uh, I, I, oddly enough, the same manager calls me last November and says, hey, <laughs> I know you're conservative. And there's a show called, uh, you know, there's this uh, uh, deplorable show. And they want, they want somebody to come in, play some guitar. They got some girls singing. You, I, I offered you up, said you'd be perfect. And so I was like, well, that's kind of intriguing. I didn't realize how, um, I didn't realize what a bold move it was. It was just going to be fun. You know, but this country is so divided right now and everybody's, you know, and, and, and you almost have to be. It's like if you if you don't guard yourself, they just eat away at those rights. They just seem to you want to, uh, you know, do all we want is all we want is bump stocks. All we want is just the, all we want is that. And pretty soon. No, we're back with muskets. That's what they want. And so uh, and I didn't realize it at the time because I was just having fun. But yeah, it uh, it was. A, an easy transition for me because it was honest. And I think if there's if there's anything about art that's important, that's it. You just you, you have to be honest because the public will smell it if you're not. And for something like this, I don't know why anybody would want to go out and do um, conservative comedy if it wasn't in their heart. Yeah. Because, <laughs> because a choice it's, you make. It, it is not an easy road. And it's cost me it's cost me honestly, it's cost me quite a few gigs in the in the music
2: world. I want to hear about that in a minute, but I want to go back to what you mentioned before that you were getting complaints about your act for very sort of benign stuff. Can you, can you remember any examples of something where people complain, you know, thinking, oh my goodness, that's, that's pretty milk toast.
3: Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, stuff like, uh, you know, I do like um, fist fight at the Waffle House or something. I mean, just something like really uh-huh. pretty much straight ahead. And they, but there's a line in it about uh, the, the girl has uh, like, um, acne-ridden crystal meth skin or something. There's one line like that, and that made a few people mad. Just like, how can you make fun of people that have a drug addiction? And then it's like, it's just, it's just a joke, guys. I'm not making fun of drug addictions. And just little things like that you would think is it, we should be able to laugh at. We yeah. should be able to just, you know. Um, and I have friends, obviously, in the music business. I have some friends that are addicted. I take it seriously, but you know we've we've got to be able to laugh at ourselves a little bit
2: yeah i agree and also it's you're painting a scene you're using characters and you need the flexibility as an artist to tell those stories and to kind of get attacked for this and attacked for that then when you go back to the studio you're writing a song you're thinking what can i say uh, well exactly and then you can't be, and
3: then it goes back to what I was saying. You can't be honest. Mm-hmm. Now I have to, you know, you start making a case for your audience. And you can't do that. You have to, the, the, the first thing, uh, Robert Frost, a brilliant quote that he he said, no tears in the writer, no tears in the reader. Mm-hmm. And if something is is funny, if I'm doing something funny, it has to make me laugh. It has to make, oh my God, can I say this? This is hilarious. That goes down on paper. And if it doesn't make me laugh, when I, when I sing the song, like two or three times through, if I'm still not laughing at the parts where I you know where, that are funny, mm-hmm. I, I change it until it does make me laugh and I can see that it's really funny. it has some staying power. That's that's where I start. And then obviously you go to the audience and if and if they laugh at different spots, you might have to tweak a little bit. Because obviously you're trying to entertain, but yeah, it has to start with honesty from you and you can't, you can't start like, what would, what would this audience like, or what would that person like? That's just a a rabbit hole that, uh, I certainly don't want to go down.
2: Yeah, and I've spoken to so many comedians over the years and I say, Listen, the stage is my workshop. I will workshop a joke until I get it right. So if you tell a joke one night and it doesn't kill, maybe if you change the inflection, maybe change a word or two, and all of a sudden you got a great bit. But you've got to have that the room to roam to kind of try things out. Without that, you're in trouble. I, I think you and I spoke maybe a few months ago about you losing gigs, which you kind of alluded to just a couple seconds ago. Can, can you expand on that? Because I, I think this is important. And this isn't just, hey, I disagree with your politics. It, it It's where the rubber meets the road in a very bad way. Talk about what you've experienced when you embraced being a write-up center and how that impacted your career.
3: Uh, yeah, well, first I got... Uh, I got a couple of calls from you know I got a call from this one producer that I worked with a lot, and he said, "Are you are you sure you want to do this, dude? (laughs) You've got a a great reputation in this business, and and uh, you know when it when this gets out, he says, right now it's you know nobody knows you're doing this, but if you're like on Fox News and stuff, people see your face. It's like this is." Are you sure you want to do it? And I go, yeah, I want to do it. I don't, you know, I'm not going to live my life being afraid of what I believe in. Was he and, being friendly, like he was trying to help you? Or was it being like a warning, You think? It, he was being friendly. And then uh, sh- I was probably working for him. I don't know, maybe um, he was one of my, one of my bigger employers. I was probably working for him two or three days a week. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I haven't worked with him now in six months. So he never said, "Look, I can't use you." But he pretty much just ghosted me, just like the phone stopped ringing, and I just don't work for him anymore. So you and, were but working
2: did, with for how long? Were you working for them up until that point? Uh ten years. Wow, ten years, so often, fairly steady, ten years, yeah. weekly, and then it's and then it's over.
3: Yeah, and there's been a, a few like that that just. Um you just get ghosted you because they don't tell you this guy actually was um you know he was upfront enough to say to at least give me a warning shot Yeah. you know <laughs> but but most of the guys they just when this all came out is just like the the phone stops ringing and you go from working 5 days a week 6 days a week to working you know one day every 2 weeks mm-hmm. and um and it, you know fortunately I at my age I'm in a position where I, you know, it doesn't really matter. I'm doing it. I'm kind of doing it more for fun now. And so, um, it's not, uh, it's,
2: it's not, it's, I'm not worried about the mortgage payment, but you know, but it does matter. It does matter. And by the way, you're not going on stage and saying racist, sexist, you're just telling jokes that are right of center. I want to, I want to, you know, let's let that be clear. You're not being outrageous and crazy and irresponsible, you're just leaning to the right in your presentation on a tour that leans to the right. Is I mean, is that a fair assessment? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, this isn't Chappelle. And I love the
3: Chappelle special, but huh. I mean, but he, he's definitely, you know, pretty crazy edgy. And he hmm. should be. That's what Chappelle does. But no, one of my songs is um, I literally took I was writing a song about AOC and I I was trying to write jokes and be jokey and it was just kind of not landing and so I did a little, you know, got on the internet, Googled her, just looked at, and I said, that's it. All I have to do is quote her. I wrote a three-minute song of just her quotes, and it's the funniest thing in my show. It's the funniest thing in the act. People scream because I just say verbatim. I literally quote her and just say what she said.
2: You so that's not
3: tech, that's not racist or edgy or anything. I'm just saying what this this
2: lady says. Gotcha. Now, you were on the Deplorables tour for a while, and now there's a new tour, the Eagles of Liberty with Chad Prather, Michael Loftus, Reno, Reno Collier, who, by the way, were all guests on the show. Talk a little bit about, I, I, you know, I don't know if I've got the full story here, but there was some, was there conflict about naming the tour MAGA, but it didn't work out or what, is there a reason for the name situation? Uh, yeah, we
3: went through a, (laughs) we went through a couple of variations there, but, um, yeah, we were trying to land on something that explained what the tour was. And, and at some point I threw out, why are we tap dancing? Around this, let's just call it the Maga tour. Let's just dive in. That's what it is. Let's just call it that. And so everybody laughed and they thought about it and said, "You know what? You're right. That's that's what we're doing. Let's just do it." And and so it turned out that uh, that was uh, a less than bright move because the uh, Facebook and Twitter shadow banned anything to ha- that has to do. With- if if Maga is in the title, you you get. Twelve viewers instead of ten thousand, so they they won't you know tweet it out to to all your following. Facebook won't let you uh, buy ads for it. It just goes on and on. And then the clubs, you know, frankly, and I don't blame them, but the clubs, uh, a lot of these, you know, improvs and funny bones and all of these comedy clubs, they're in urban areas in any city.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Now they'll have um, more conservative comedies. You know, comedians come in. But but the club location will be downtown and they don't want to put a big MAGA poster in the window with a flag on it saying this conference is coming because they're afraid that, you know, somebody's going to throw a brick through the window and and they have a point. Somebody probably will. And so they were like, no, we can't, you know, advertise you. We can't put your posters up. We can't say anything. You can just come in and do the show. So it was it was kind of doomed from the from the start. And so we uh we said, let's move on to something that's a little, maybe a little more clever, a little more subtle. Uh And so we came up with the freedom to laugh tour. And, but we are the Eagles of Liberty. So, so you think of it like a band name, the four of us are the Eagles of Liberty. And we're going out on our, like the, um, you know, like the
2: Eagles hell freezes over tour We're the (laughs) Eagles of Liberty and it's the freedom to laugh tour. Gotcha. Those, those anecdotes you just shared was that what your management sort of reached out to the clubs and that was the feedback? How did, how did you hear those things? Cause it's, it's interesting.
3: Well, we, we, it was, uh, we found out ourselves, we did a couple of shows and we got there and on the marquee it said, what was, you know, the act that was there the night before and the act that was going to be there tomorrow and nothing about us. No, Not a poster in the window. And I'm like, what's going on? usually the night of the show you have something on the marquee you got a poster up and so so I inquired um, politely to management and they said well let's let's let me find out let's see what's going on and uh, and that's exactly what they came back with it's like dude <laughs> nobody's going to uh, nobody's gonna to put mag in the window and um, further than that several places wouldn't even book us there were like, uh, you know, theaters and places that just said, no, we won't book a, a, any show that with MAGA in the title. We don't want any any part of that. So, so yeah, we were starting to get turned down from actual clubs and, and theaters.
2: I, uh, I'm i just amazed. I mean, I, I, I hear these stories, but it still amazes me. But uh, let's switch gears, something more positive. The show itself, obviously, you know, four different comedians. I've seen Steve McGrew in the past. He's been in Deplorables and I've seen Chad Prather and their act isn't political at all now they may have evolved their routine but when you see the eagles of liberty is it sort of a lot of political humor a dash of it how would you kind of describe the overall tone and we'll get to your specific act
3: um it's it's about
2: maybe half and
3: half Uh i would probably now um 75 okay you know that's that's kind of where we're going with it um yeah the you know Chad has become more political over the the past year or so. I think his act has become uh, much more political. Reno fills that slot where he just talks about he talks about middle America, family values, yeah. and it's he, his is very personal. His is very much about um, his life, his family, you know going, you know, growing up, going to a military school and, you know, being, uh, he's living in, you know, in Tennessee. And so it, that's the part of the show that's really not political. And I think, um, you know, you have Michael Loftus comes out and it's like a history lesson. That guy's like an encyclopedia mm-hmm. and he just like, boom, 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 comes out with all of these, these, you know, great political things and he, and he brings history into it. And, and obviously I come out and I'm all music. Yeah. So so I do my funny songs, and um, and then you get Chad, like I said, who is that Will Rogers type, uh, homespun, uh, middle America humor, but he does add some. He definitely adds some politics to it. Gotcha. And 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 then Reno is like virtually no politics, and I think it 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 works really well because by the time you get to. By the time you get toward the end of the show, you're like, how many jokes can you make about Nancy Pelosi? <laughs> you know I mean, it's like, OK, what else you got? And then it just kind of reaffirms. I think that uh, Reno's part of the act reaffirms why we're doing this. It's he does talk about um, the church and and family values and all the things that that are important to to so many
2: Americans.
3: And it just it puts a nice
2: bow on the show. Yeah, yeah. And just also reminds us why you're all there in the first place. Um, besides your AOC song, any other song titles you can tease, before we let you go.
3: Oh, let's see. We've got a nice sing along with, uh, about Nancy Pelosi. Uh Uh And, um, let's see, I opened with a song called, we're going to make them, we're going to make them cry again in 2020 (laughs) and, uh, got a song about, I have a great song about, um, Jussie Smollett. Mm. And, And I thought that, you know, when I wrote that song, I thought, well, this has a shelf life of. You know, two weeks <laughs> Good luck. and boy, he is the gift that just keeps on giving about every, every two, three weeks. He's back in the news. And I'm
2: like, yeah, I can still sing my Jesse song. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, I'm glad to hear that. But uh, well, Brian, I really appreciate you joining the head cast. You can see Brian live as part of the Eagles of Liberty comedy tour coming to a stage near you. And visit brianhainer.com for info on Brian, as well as how to pick up some of his records and his novels. You're a novelist as well. well maybe next time we talk, we'll talk more about that. Uh, the books are Carny Man and Ginny Rebs. so uh, another side of your talents. Brian, thank you so much. I appreciate what you do. I'm sorry that you've had to go through so much crap. I'll use that word. I'm allowed to. It's my podcast. And uh, we're looking forward to seeing you live.
3: Oh, it's all going to be worth it in the end. Thank you so much, Christian.
2: Well, thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check out hollywoodandtoto.com for both the show notes and, of course, the latest entertainment news. Please follow me at Twitter, at Hollywood and Toto. And we'd love it if you leave a podcast review over at iTunes. See you next week.